Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Fun Factory. Written and read by Chris England. Chapter 24. A Woman of Paris I woke to screaming, not sure where I was or what was happening. I was still trying to unscramble my wits when a tiny figure burst into my room and stood, sobbing, on the mat in her bare feet. Monsieur Arthur! Monsieur Arthur! It was Amélie, the thirteen-year-old premier danseuse from the Folly, who was staying with her mother and sister in our hotel. It is Monsieur Charles! He is... Here she broke off, choked with emotion. Dead! There's an undeniable frisson of excitement when you think you might have killed someone with the power of your bare hands. A moment of raw masculinity, something like that. And France, as a nation, and as a legal system, recognised the crime of passion as a legitimate defence, so I might even have got away with it. I had the grandmother and grandfather of all headaches, though whether this was from the drink or from being run into a wall like a bull, I wasn't sure. I lurched up into a half-sitting position and grunted, "'Dead?' I just about managed to focus my eyes on little Amélie, who was looking at me, appalled, as though horror was piling upon horror. Her hands flew to her mouth, and then she filled her lungs and let out another almighty scream as she fled. I got myself to the basin, which seemed to be full of pink water, like some sort of medicine. I splashed my face with the stuff, and it got even pinker. Aha! That would be blood, then. I then caught sight of myself in the shaving mirror, and realised why Amélie had run for her life. I looked like an ogre, "'battered, swollen and bloody, with a fat lip, one eye half-closed, "'and a lump, like a goose-egg, on my forehead. "'I grunted and shambled my aching carcass into the next room to check on Chaplin. "'I could see, actually any fool could have seen, his chest rising and falling, "'but he'd taken such a battering that all the screaming and palaver hadn't woken him up, "'and there was blood trickling from the corner of his mouth. "'I gave a little harumph of satisfaction.' As I shuffled across the corridor, I passed little Amélie cowering in the corridor. "'He's not dead, more's the pity,' I snarled, and then went back to bed. Of course, we'd kicked off at the restaurant. Tilly stood up, and I met her halfway across the room. "'Tilly?' I said, still not wholly believing my eyes. "'Hello, Arthur,' she said, keeping hers downcast. "'I'd better, you know,' she hurried over to answer Miss Danguette's summons. "'Well,' I said, turning to confront Charlie, "'What have you got to say for yourself?' "'I really haven't done anything wrong, have I?' he bleated shiftily. "'Haven't done anything wrong?' I shouted. "'You know, you know that I've been looking everywhere, "'trying everything I know for a year to try and find Tilly, "'and now here I find you, blithely sitting here "'having a secret romantic dinner with her, as though it was nothing. "'Listen, I couldn't tell you, could I? "'She asked me not to.' "'Maurice was putting two and two together. "'Mathilde? Mathilde is the girl? Oh, la, la!' Apparently French people do actually say that when surprised. That's right, I bellowed, and this little weasel has been sneaking around with her behind my back. 
I grabbed a fistful of his shirt front and pulled him up onto his feet to oblige him to face me like a man. I planted myself four square, feeling the need, I must admit, to keep my balance against the effects of the celebration, and gathered myself to deliver retribution with a capital R. The room gasped as I swung my fist at Chaplin, who ducked, lightning fast, and then scurried away on all fours between my feet and stood up behind me. The indignity of it. I, I lumbered round to confront him again, swung my fist at his head, and he did the same thing again, popping up behind me like a jack-in-the-box. Now the whole restaurant seemed to be laughing and cheering, which only enraged me more. I was trying to kill him, and the little bastard was scoring laughs off me. It was too much. I gave up on the haymakers and jabbed my fist forward at his face, trying to slow him down. He swayed left, making me miss, and then swayed right, and I missed again. I drove another big punch at his chin, and he disappeared between my feet once more. This time, when he popped up behind me, he kicked me up the backside. Hoots of laughter were ringing around the restaurant now, and I changed tactics, my cheeks burning with embarrassment. I decided to give chase, and Charlie dodged away round one large round table and then another. We found ourselves suddenly facing each other across a smaller, empty table, he fainted one way, and I matched him. He made to go the other way, and I blocked. He went one way and then the other, and I mirrored his moves, and then grasped the table and hurled it aside to grab him in a bear hug. He turned to flee, but wasn't fast enough, and I managed to grab hold of him from behind, pinning his arms. Before I could work out what to do next, though, Charlie ran up the white-shirted barrel chest of a fat gentleman sitting at the table opposite. Yes, ran up him, and twisted out of my grasp, so that he was now horizontal, with his feet on the fellow's shoulders either side of his pop-eyed, gasping red head, and his hands on mine. On the way up, his feet kicked over a large plate of mussels, which went flying down the cleavage of the fat gentleman's wife, and everyone at their table screamed. Charlie and I were momentarily face to face. He planted a kiss on the end of my nose and sprang to freedom. I roared incoherently with rage, but all of a sudden I couldn't move. Strong hands had taken hold of my arms and legs, and I suddenly found myself being carried bodily out into the street by four burly waiters, with applause inexplicably ringing in my ears. As they shoved me roughly through the glass doors and dumped me onto the pavement, I saw to my satisfaction that Charlie was being similarly dumped some six feet away and prepared myself to continue hostilities right away. However, Maurice had followed us out and barred my way, while Ernie had hold of Charlie, who otherwise, I think, might just have bolted into the night. "'No, my friend,' Maurice urged. "'You must not fight in the street. It will be a night in prison for both of you.' I saw the sense in his argument, particularly as two gendarmes were at that very moment eyeing us suspiciously from across the boulevard. "'He's right,' Ernie said, although Charlie needed little persuading to back down. He wasn't expecting what Ernie said next, though. "'We'll settle this back at the hotel. Come on.' Queensbury rules, like Englishmen. Ernie, of course, had been a prize-fighter in his time. He was only a lightweight, but he was certainly imposing enough to bend Charlie to his will, and I was mustard keen. Maurice waved and blew a kiss through the picture window at Miss Danguette, who was peering out into the night, and by her side I saw Tilly, also watching, her expression unreadable. At the hotel we went straight up to Ernie's room. He made us take off our shoes so as not to disturb people in other rooms, and Charlie and I stripped down to shirt sleeves and braces. Ernie stood between us, a hand on each of our chests, and said, Right, let's do this thing. No kicking, no gouging, and hands off the family jewels, you get me? We nodded, tensed, and Maurice began to snigger. We glared at him. I'm sorry, he giggled. It is all so noble. Now that he couldn't back out of it, Charlie was as ready for battle as I was, and when Ernie stepped back, he came at me, landing a couple of light blows to the sides of my head, which I swatted away derisively. I thumped him on the chest, which took some of the wind out of him, and then we went at it in earnest. 
Charlie danced around on his toes to begin with, trying to stay out of my reach. There were none of the crowd-pleasing comedy antics he'd employed in the restaurant, apart from one occasion when I rushed him, trying to get to grips, and he sidestepped so that I ran headfirst into a wall. I gave him a ringing thump on the ear, which slowed him down a bit, and then he tried to brain me with a chair, but Ernie pinned his arms by his sides and gave him a stern talking to, which I'm not sure I could hear on account of the ringing. Finally, I caught Chaplin with a big, flailing, open-hand slap which rattled his jaw and echoed off the bare walls like a gunshot ricochet. He stepped back and put his hands up, then began to feel in his mouth for loosened teeth. There was blood on his fingers, and I think he'd bitten his tongue. I waited, poised to finish him off. C'est fini, Maurice cried, and led me to the far side of the room. I was too tired to protest. I looked up and saw that there was blood on the wall and on the ceiling. And the next thing I remember is that silly girl screaming and waking me up. In his autobiography, by the way, if you care to take a look at his account of the month we spent in Paris, you will find that Charlie says he had this fight with Ernie Stone. I suppose this is so he doesn't have to mention me, or the fact that he was entirely in the wrong and deserved everything he got. It also makes him sound like a tough little scrapper, doesn't it, to have fought an ex-professional boxer to a standstill. We can't both be right, can we? I didn't speak with Tilly for several days, even though I now knew where she was and how to find her. Partly I wanted to wait until I was at least presentable, having received absolute proof that my face was capable of scaring children, and partly I was cross with her for not making herself known to me. I saw her, though. Now I knew how to look for her. In fact, I could hardly believe I'd managed to miss her. It was the dark hair that had thrown me, as all my daydreaming, and night-dreaming for that matter, of her had recalled her lovely fair locks. But there she was, not only one of Miss Danguette's chorus, wearing very little, this fact concealed artfully behind a pair of giant feather fans, but also as a shocked hotel maid, trying to keep vases and glasses from crashing to the floor, as La Volse Renversante whirled on its merry way. I took every opportunity to watch her in action, but couldn't quite bring myself to approach her backstage. I didn't speak to Chaplin either, and he didn't speak to me. I wasn't interested in his self-justifying wheedling, and in any case his mouth was so sore that he couldn't have spoken even if he'd tried to. The drunken swell appeared even more drunken than usual, while much of the change to the magician's appearance was fortuitously masked by his moustache. On the last night of our month in Paris, with the prospect of the boat train for Calais first thing in the morning, I finally decided that it was time. After our last performance of Mummingbirds, I dodged my share of the packing up and slipped around front of house to watch the second half of the bill, which contained Tilly's appearances, and then I went backstage. I determinedly checked every crack and crevice of all the dressing rooms, much to the flirty glee of the Folie Berger dancers, but Tilly was nowhere to be seen. At last, Maurice beckoned me into his room. Miss Danguette was there, and the two of them were drinking champagne. "'Join us, mon ami,' Maurice said, looking for another glass. "'We must cheer you on your way, eh?' "'Thanks,' I said, but I was looking for Tilly. Uh, Mathilde, I mean.' Maurice turned to Miss Danguette, and they began an animated exchange in French, which I couldn't follow. He was protesting about something, and she was forbidding him to do something, if I understood the pantomime correctly.' She, uh, Mathilde, is doing something for Miss Danguette, and Miss Danguette is doing something for Mathilde. An admirer, you see, and they've left together already. I'm sorry. Where have they gone? I cannot tell you. I'm sorry. She will not allow it. She has high hopes for Mathilde and this nobleman. He is a, a count from Prussia. It could be a very advantageous match. He shrugged his apologies. Have some champagne with us, my friend, and let us talk of other things. I reeled out into the corridor again and stumbled towards the stairs. 
Before I could make it out into the evening air, however, there was a little whistle from behind me, and suddenly Maurice was by my side. L'escargot d'or, he whispered. Rue de Rivoli. Bon chance, mon ami. Et vive la mort. Then he embraced me, kissed me on both cheeks, and trotted back to his room. I mentioned he was French, didn't I? Shortly afterwards, I managed to locate the restaurant where Tilly was apparently having a late supper with some continental knob. L'escargot d'or had a large front window, and the brightly lit tables could clearly be seen from the street. I spotted a good vantage point from which to look in, behind a sort of cylindrical wrought-iron installation, so I loafed there and tried not to look too suspicious. I spotted Tilly quickly enough, at a table with two military gents in fancy blue uniforms, not quite as fancy as King Alfonso's, but still, and another girl. I realised I had nothing, no plan of any kind. I fantasised briefly about making a scene and starting a fight, but even though it was my own fantasy, the two foreign soldiers gave me a good sound beating. Through the window I saw the Prussian Count take Tilly's hand and bring it to his lips, paying her a compliment of some kind, and she laughed. I remembered that laugh. I hadn't heard it for a year. A steady, reeking trickle of steaming liquid suddenly began to run under and over and into my shoes. Suddenly the gulf that had grown between Tilly and me was brutally apparent. She was being wined and dined by the aristocracy in a fancy restaurant, while I was outside in the cold, hiding behind a pissoir. A Frenchman emerged, adjusting his clothing, and gave me a quizzical look, and I found myself walking away with my regrets, one of which was definitely choosing that hiding place. As I walked and walked, it came to me that spending this last evening watching her from afar was maybe all I had left of my dream of us ever being together again, so I turned myself round and headed back up the boulevard. And not a moment too soon either, because as I made it back within sight of L'Escargot d'Or, there was Tilly and the Prussian on the pavement outside. A moment later, a carriage hoved into the picture, closed with a fancy crest on the side, a bit like the one the governor had off the Duke of Chatsworth. It stopped alongside, and the driver jumped smartly down, saluted his highness, and held the door open as Tilly stepped inside. I froze, horror-struck, thinking that this might actually turn out to be the last glimpse I ever got of her. Then, to my surprise, the nobleman closed the door to the carriage while still standing there on the pavement, took Tilly's hand through the open window, and kissed it, saluted, nodded curtly to the driver, turned smartly on his heel, and went back into the restaurant. I watched the carriage go, carrying Tilly out of my life. Then, with a mind of their own almost, my feet began to stride after it, faster and faster, until I was fairly pelting along. I dodged in and out, weaving through the late-night promenaders, until, up ahead, the carriage slowed to take a corner across me into a narrow street. If I'd carried on running, I'd have flattened myself against the side of it. Quickly, I grabbed the handle, wrenched the door open, and flung myself inside. "'Arthur!' Tilly squealed. "'What do you think you're doing?' "'Bit of excitement for a Saturday night,' I said, "'sitting down heavily on a plush leather bonquette opposite her, "'gasping for breath. "'Get out, for goodness sake,' Tilly hissed. "'This is Count Adelbert's personal carriage. "'If he finds out you were in here molesting me, "'I don't know what he'll do. "'Challenge you to pistols at dawn, most likely.' "'Who's going to tell him?' I said. "'Tilly agitatedly indicated the driver, and I shook my head. "'He didn't see me. "'He will, though, when we stop and he escorts me to the front door. "'Whatever were you thinking of?' "'I wanted to talk to you,' I said, trying to keep a bleating tone out of my voice. "'We're leaving in the morning.' "'Well, you had all week to talk to me, didn't you? "'Or were you too busy knocking poor Charlie's teeth out?' "'Poor Charlie, is it?' "'Well, what's that supposed to?' she started crossly, "'but then our conveyance slowed and turned into a drive. "'Oh, God, we're nearly there. This is it. Come here, come here.' "'Tilly slid sideways along the seat, urging me to do the same, "'and as the carriage came to a halt, she waited with her hand poised on the door-handle.' 
As soon as she heard the driver clamber down from his perch on the one side, she wrenched the door open and shoved me out the other. The carriage was thus between me and the flunky, and he was none the wiser. Neatly done. I peeked around the back wheel and watched him gallantly guide Tilly up the steps to a pleasantly appointed townhouse with lights still burning inside. As she disappeared inside, the driver bowed from the waist, and then as he snapped back upright, he clicked his heels with a crack, not unlike the noise little Titch's wooden clackers used to make, before hopping back up to his seat and clip-flopping away. Ten minutes later the front door opened just for a heartbeat, and a small figure slipped out. She skipped quickly down the steps, peering around from side to side into the ornamental bushes until I stepped out. "'There you are,' Tilly said. "'Let's walk. Come on.' She slipped her arm in mine, and we headed off along the wide, tree-lined boulevard. Even though the hour was late, there were still several couples strolling along in the lamplight. It seemed to be quite the done thing. There was so much to say that I couldn't quite summon up what should be first. The silence stretched on for an achingly long time, until I heard myself uttering the following timelessly charming and witty opening gambit. "'I like your hair.' "'What?' Tilly said, turning to look at me, and as she did so, I saw for the first time that the hair tumbling down beneath her hat was actually the gold colour I remembered. Oh, yes, that wig. I just had to take it off. Such a relief. Miss Danguette likes all her girls to be dark, you see. We're, we're not really people. We're scenery. How did you come to be with her? Do you know, it was straight after, you know, the end of that Carno thing. Well, the end for me, anyhow. She shot me a sharp look, and I felt a surge of something acid in the pit of my stomach. What was that, a year ago? I came to London without an idea what I was to do, and my dancer friend, Angeline, you remember her? Pale thing, puked up on the won't detain you? She was coming to France and said, why didn't I come too? So I, I did. And we started dancing at the folly. I say dancing, it was posing, really, assuming alluring postures. She let go of my arm and demonstrated some of these, which made me smile, mostly with relief that we were starting to relax together. Then Miss Danguette asked me to join her troupe, and, and that's been me ever since. She's lovely, although she does treat me rather like you would a pet. And you? Charlie seems to think you're still Carno's blue-eyed boy. Does he? Oh, yes, I've been listening to him going on and on about how he could be the next number one to lead a company just as long as it isn't you, and how he has such and such a thing in his favour and you have so and so. I like him, but he will talk about himself, that boy. Did he not tell you I've been looking for you? Have you? No, he didn't mention that. Well, why didn't you say something when you realised I was at the folly? Why didn't you? I didn't recognise you, did I? We turned a corner and found that we'd walked to the Champs-Élysées. Neither of us wanted to turn back, so we kept on walking towards the Arc de Triomphe. I wrote, you know, over and over. Then I went to your address, and your landlady gave me my own letters back to give to you if I ever saw you. I even went to South End. You never did, she gasped. I did. I met your mother and father. I saw your father's theatre on the beach. Tilly nodded slowly, acknowledging the demise of that little fabrication of hers. I met your sister, too. She stopped and turned to face me. Well, then, you know what fate had in store for me if I stayed there. A screaming brat on each arm and another on the way. Not to mention a thriving ironmongery. She laughed. They really didn't keep any of my secrets, did they? Well, things are different now. Dear Miss Danguette plans to marry me off to a Prussian count who wants to whisk me off to the Hohenzollern, whatever that is. Is that what you want? Well, a girl could do worse, it seems to me, than becoming a countess, I mean. I see. I feigned exhaustion tonight to get away early, keeping him keen, you see. We strolled along in companionable silence, but inside I was churning away madly, trying to think, 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 how to bring up the matter that was eating me up. Eventually the pavements began to seem emptier, 
and we were no longer walking past all-night cafes and bars, but shops and business premises closed up for the night. We should turn back, Tilly said. She stopped, obliging me to circle her so that we could retrace our steps. Now or never, I thought. Listen, I said, my heart in my mouth. That time, when we were married, remember? Of course I remember. I don't pretend to be married to all the fellows, you know. Not a day goes by that I don't wish I'd said something or done something different. She disengaged her arm from mine and walked ahead. You made your choice. It was me or Carno, simple as that, and you chose Carno. It wasn't as simple as that. We hardly even talked about it. I was ready, you know, to throw my lot in with you, she said softly. Do it then. Do it now. I'll chuck Carno and we'll make an act together, you and me. What act? What do you mean? I don't know. We'll think of something. It doesn't matter what it is. We'll make it work and we'll be together. That's the important thing. She turned to face me there in the street. Tears were glistening in her eyes, but she wasn't crying. And then what? Every time you saw a Carno company on the bill or heard someone say how well Charlie was doing now, it would be my fault, wouldn't it? My fault for making you choose me. I want to choose you. I should have chosen you. I would always choose you, I said fervently. Always and only. I held my breath as if I realised suddenly that the whole future course of my life and hers could be decided by what she said next. Well, that was then, wasn't it? She said finally. I've got a life here now, a different life, with Miss Danguette and Count Adelbert of Prussia. She put her arm in mine again and we walked along together. I tried to think of something else I could say, but nothing came, and in any event I was choking. In no time, seemingly, we reached the house where she was staying and it was time to say good night. I found a stub of pencil in my pocket, scribbled the Streatham address on a scrap of paper and gave it to her. Send me a postcard from the Hohenzollern, I managed to croak out. She reached up and put her hands on my shoulders, then gave me a quick peck on each cheek. Very French, I thought. Very sisterly. Take care of yourself, Arthur Dando, she said, and then skipped lightly up the steps to the front door. I turned and walked until I recognised where I was, and eventually found myself back at the hotel where I was staying for what little was left of one more night only. It took hours and hours, but I didn't really care. I didn't really see the point of anything anymore. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Chapter 25. The Toss of a Coin. 
Harry Weldon has up and quit. Charlie and I looked at one another, then across at Fred Carno. Our jaws hit his desk in amazement. Yes, would you believe it? He's got it into his fat head that he wants people to come and see him for a change, not the Carno comics. And you know what? I say the best of British luck to him. He's going to sing comical songs, if you please. And if he can get a booking outside of Lancashire by the end of next year, then I'll eat my hat. Not just my everyday hat, either. I'll eat the big hat. He jerked his thumb over his shoulder at the cupboard, where all Carno comics knew the big hat resided, waiting to take you down a peg or two if you got too big for your outsized Carno comedy boots. What does this mean, boys? I see thee struggling to calculate. Well, I'm going to need to find myself a new number one comic, as the football match still has bookings to fulfil. There's Will Pulusky, maybe, and there's the two of you. So who reckons they could fill Weldon's shoes, eh? I could do it, Chaplin blurted out quick as a flash. I'm ready. I know all the moves and I've got some ideas too. I'm sure you have, Carno interrupted. What about you, Mr Dando? Do you think you have what it takes? I tore my eyes away from glowering resentfully at Chaplin and answered, Yes, Governor, I'm ready to step up if you want me to. Now Chaplin was glaring at me, although what else he expected me to say I can't imagine. Carno leaned back in his chair and interlocked his fingers behind his head. I'm inclined to think that young Pulusky let Weldon push him around too easily, and he can wait his turn until he gets himself some gumption. So here's my problem. Two promising candidates, but only the one opening. What to do? What to do? He knew perfectly well what he was going to do, of course. He was just toying with us. We held our breath. All right, he said, sitting forward again. Here's how it is. He took a gold sovereign from his waistcoat pocket, showed it to us, and poised it on the end of his thumb. He looked at Chaplin and said, "'Call it!' Chaplin was aghast. "'Governor,' he wheedled, "'you're surely not going to decide something as important as this on the toss of a coin?' "'If I want to do so, then I shall,' Carno said. "'Call it, Mr Chaplin!' Chaplin looked plaintively at me for support, but I just shrugged my shoulders. "'Very well,' he said, conceding defeat. "'Heads!' The sovereign spun and twinkled in the air, and then tinkled onto the desk between us. We all peered in to look, and heads it was. Chaplin smirked triumphantly. "'Interesting,' Carno said, building suspense like the master showman he was. He was a master showman, I mentioned that, didn't I? He coughed. "'All right,' he said then. "'Listen carefully. The football match opens at the Oxford on Saturday next. There's a matinee and an evening performance.' In one of these performances, Mr Dando will play Stiffy the goalkeeper, and in the other, Mr Chaplin, you will play the part. After this, I will make my determination, and my decision will be final. Follow? We both nodded, brain cogs spinning, competitive juices already beginning to flow. Mr Chaplin, you won't coin toss. Will you take first or second turn? Now this was clearly a matter worthy of serious deliberation. The evening bill at the Oxford would certainly be rowdier than the matinee and if the act went well, the audience would potentially be more demonstrative. A calmer atmosphere, though, often meant that an audience was more attentive to details and easier to control. "'Well,' said Carno, tapping his fingers on the desktop. You didn't want to make him lose his patience. First, said Chaplin hurriedly, "'I shall go first, and he should not be allowed to watch.' "'Happy not to,' I said. "'Well, there it is,' said Carno, getting to his feet and fixing us with a stony eye. "'I expect all this to take place in proper spirit,' he said.' Truth to tell, the two of us had not spoken since the night of the fight in Paris. I think the last words that had passed between us were Chaplin sneering, "'Call that a punch!' just before I relieved him of a molar. We'd studiously avoided each other's company on the train from Paris to Calais, on the ferry from Calais to Dover, and then on the train back up to London. I wasn't going to extend an olive branch. 
Now, though, it seemed we were going to have to put a diplomatic face on things for the governor's sake. Charlie forced himself to offer his hand and look me in the eye. "'May the best man win,' he said through gritted teeth. "'May the better man win,' I corrected him. "'I hadn't spent all those years eavesdropping on old Don's dinner-time conversations "'at the high table of a Cambridge college without picking up some pedantism of my own. "'Sorry, I mean pedantry, don't I?' "'I'm sure I shall,' Charlie smirked. "'Good, good,' Carno said. "'All right now. Run along, children.' He made a show of going back to his paperwork, his habitual way of making his performers feel like there was always something to do that was more important than talking to us. As Chaplin and I reached the door, he gave one of his little coughs. "'Oh, Arthur!' I turned to look at him. Actually, we both did. "'Could I just have a quick word? In private?' "'Course, Governor,' I said, enjoying the look that flitted across Chaplin's face. "'Shut the door.' I did so, on Chaplin. "'Have a seat.' As I sat down, Carno perched on the corner of his desk. "'I like you, Arthur. Thank you, Governor. "'And you like me, don't you?' "'Of course I do, Governor.' He gave a little cough, and for one awful moment I thought he was about to proposition me. "'You just thought that too, be honest.' It might have been easier to deal with all round if he had done, because what he actually had in mind was this. "'You want to beat young Chaplin, don't you, at this little contest of mine?' "'Whatever it takes,' I said. "'Well, then, perhaps if you could help me out with a little something, then maybe I should be able to help you in return. Do you get my drift?' He smiled in a friendly sort of a way. It was terrifying. "'What could I help you out with, Mr Carno?' The governor stood, patted me on the shoulder, then began to pace the room. "'Have you seen my wife of late?' "'Well, no, I've been in Paris for the last month,' I pointed out. "'So you have, so you have. "'But you are friendly with her?' "'I think so,' I said. "'She's still a handsome woman. "'I'm sorry, attractive. "'You think her attractive, I take it?' "'I suppose so,' I ventured. "'Good, that's good,' Carno said. "'That is as it should be. "'No need to beat about the bush. "'We are grown men. "'Men of the world, eh?' Carno paced up and down the small office, coughed again, then fixed me with his beady eye. "'When our marriage ended, as it sadly did, no fault on either side, just one of those unfortunate things, she was persuaded by unscrupulous men that her best interests lay not in the divorce which would have made things right and proper between us, but in our remaining manacled together in a union that is little more than a sham. A sham, I tell thee, devised by lawyers with the sole purpose of milking me for every penny they can squeeze out.' Here he paused and took out a handkerchief with which to mop his brow. "'Because of this, I'm unable to make an honest woman of Maria, and I'm unable to move on with my life, leaving that unhappy chapter behind me.' "'I see,' I said, more to fill the pause than anything, because I didn't see yet, not really. "'Good, Arthur, good. I knew you would,' Carno said, and returned to his chair behind his desk, leaning forward again to rest on his elbows. Now the fact is, I can see no way out of this legal impasse without the help of someone such as your good self. Me? What can I do? I asked, not sure I was going to like the answer much. Well, you say you're friendly with my wife, correct? I nodded. Very friendly, right? I shrugged. Just so. Now if you were to... How shall I put this? If you were to become... "'even more friendly with Edith, an attractive woman, as you yourself said just now, "'to the point where you could persuade her to indulge in a liaison of a, um, carnal character. 
That would give me grounds, do you see, for a challenging course. She wouldn't have a leg to stand on, as it were, and the whole damn thing would be done and dusted in a trice. Oh, I don't know, I began. Of course, of course. You take some time to think about it, eh? That's only reasonable. You have a bit of a think. In actual fact, if you have any qualms at all about what I'm asking, it would not be essential, preferable, I think, but not at altogether essential, for you to actually engage in a liaison with Mrs. Carno, just so long as you were prepared to swear an affidavit to the effect that you had done so. There would naturally be questioning in court and so forth, concerned with verification and a, a knowledge of certain... Here he coughed one of his little coughs. Certain... <sighs> Intimate details would no doubt be unhelpful, but I'm sure someone of your skills could carry that off without breaking sweat, eh? So there it was. The road to success for me was paved with cruel seduction or perjury or a combination of the two. It was set before me as plainly as that. Ruin my wife and I'll make you a number one comic. Carno watched me anxiously. Just our little secret, all right? He said with a wink. Well, as you can no doubt imagine, I gave this matter a fair bit of thought over the next few days. In fact, I doubt whether I spent a waking moment thinking about anything else. Half the time I thought feverishly about the glittering prize that had been dangled in front of my greedy young eyes. To be the number one of a company of Fred Carno comics was all I had dreamed about since I'd come to London. And as if that wasn't enough, the brass ring came with the additional bonus of depriving Chaplin of the same. The other half of the time, I was thinking about what I would have to do to get it. Was it possible to do what Carno asked, and still escape with my own reputation intact? Only if I could make it appear that I was a hapless victim of circumstances myself, which would mean pretending to actually fall in love with Edith Carno, becoming besotted with her and sustaining that pretense for, for how long? Weeks? Months? Years? Otherwise it was a straightforward proposition. Seduce the woman and then turn on her in court. How could I do that to Edith? How could I do that to Freddie Jr. and Leslie, her sons? To Clara and Charlie Bell, her dearest friends? And yet, and yet, I could find myself the number one of a company of Fred Carno's comics, which was as near as damn it all, saying, made for life. Carno looked set to rule the roost for years and years to come, always provided he didn't sink all his money into some godforsaken scheme to set up his own entertainment resort on an island in the Thames and take himself to the very brink of bankruptcy, anything like that. I passed the whole of that week in an agony of indecision, until on the Saturday I awoke and realised that I would in all probability see Carno that evening at the Enterprise when I went to get paid. Perhaps I should make some progress. I spruced myself up, slicking down my hair and popping up to the high street for a nice close shave. I spent some little time shilly-shallying over what I should wear, trying to decide which of my two suits and three ties were most ideal for philandering in. I shined my shoes. Twice. I sat on my bed, feeling slightly faint. I opened the window, let some air in, began to shiver in the November chill. Then I heard Clara and Charlie go out of our front door, taking Edie and Miss Churchhouse up to the common for a stroll, and I got a grip of myself. Come on, I said out loud, now or never, faint heart and all that. I felt rather odd as I knocked on Edith Carno's front door. It seemed utterly unreal somehow to be calling on her with this purpose in mind. The door opened to reveal not the maid I was expecting, but Edith herself. Mr Arthur Dando, she cried when she saw me. Well, I think I can guess what you are after. I was speechless, terror-struck. How could she possibly know? I felt my face burning as she turned and disappeared into the hallway. 
When she returned a moment or two later, she had a letter in her hand which she thrust at me. "'Here you are. This is what you've come for, isn't it?' she said. "'Delivered to our door by mistake. Is this what you've been waiting for all this time?' I looked down at the envelope. It was addressed to me and had come from Paris. "'From Paris!' All thought of my strange mission fled from my head, and I began to retreat down the steps. "'Yes, yes, that's right. Thank you very much.' "'I would have popped round with it shortly, you know, but you beat me to it,' Edith smiled. "'A lady's handwriting, if I'm not mistaken. But don't let me pry.' She gave me a conspiratorial wave, then closed the door. I took my letter onto the common, and tore it open eagerly. It was from Tilly, of course, the first I had ever had from her, and it contained unexpected news. "'My dear Arthur,' she began. I liked the sound of that, and I read it again. Then she went on. "'Events have taken such a surprising turn here since you left. Maurice's combustible fiancé became so distraught at his relationship with Miss Danguette that she attempted suicide by poisoning, unsuccessfully, thank God. However, he feels duty-bound to take care of her as she recuperates, and so la valse renversante has come to an abrupt end. I feel sure it will be revived shortly, but without me, for I have determined to return to England. Amy Minister, you remember her, of course, has helped me out.' I've got an audition with Fred Carno himself, no less, next Wednesday in the afternoon at his house, while his wife is out at the shops. So fingers crossed for me, eh? With a little bit of luck, I shall not be unemployed for long. Shall we meet for tea afterwards, say four o'clock at the fun factory? She closed then with the two words, Your Tilly, which made my head spin. I could hardly believe it. Tilly was coming back and wanted to meet. The possibility that she might come to work for Carno, and that I might soon be a number one, able to pick and choose the members of my company, why, suddenly it was all falling into place perfectly. I was walking on air, I can tell you. When I pitched up at the Enterprise later that evening, I was surprised to see Fred Spikesley, Jimmy Crabtree, and Billy Ragg already ensconced in a corner, their habitual thug of smoke hanging over their table. "'Evening there, lads,' I said. "'Wasn't expecting to see you till Monday.' "'Aye,' said Fred. "'Young Charlie asked O'Neill to bring us down early. "'A couple of things he wanted to work on,' he said. "'So we thought, why not? He's paying.' "'Is that right?' I said, "'looking around to see if Chaplin was there, and he was, "'deep in conversation with Sid, not far off, "'not paying me any attention.' "'So,' I thought to myself, "'it's going to be like that, is it? "'All's fair in so-and-so, "'and also, of course, in, in you-know-what.' "'I realised it might be a very good idea "'to get these lads on side as soon as possible, "'so I clapped my hands together "'and opened my mouth to offer them all a drink on me.' Before I could do that, though, Carno himself walked up and clapped me on the back. Arthur, my boy, come with me. Someone I want you to see. I followed him around the bar, and there, beaming fit to split his face in half, was Stan. Took your advice, you see, Carno said. Got to help one another in this business, haven't we, eh? He gave me a look laden with meaning, and then turned to Stan. What does your dad have to say about it, eh, young Jefferson? Well, to tell the truth, I've not told him, Stan admitted. Ha! Carno cried. I'll bet you've not neither. Oh, I meant to ask, he said, turning to me and snapping his fingers as though this had only just occurred to him. Have you by any chance seen Mrs. Carno since we spoke? This very afternoon, I said, neglecting to go into any details. Good lad, the governor said, patting me on the back. He then drifted off to circulate amongst his flock, and Stan pumped my hand enthusiastically. So I've you to thank, have I? He grinned. I thought as much. Well, I only mentioned your name, I said. What happened? I went to a Carno pantomime when I was in Manchester and presented myself backstage afterwards. He was there, the governor, your governor, that is, said he'd heard all about me, and took me on there and then. I've been rehearsing mummingbirds these last few days and start at the Hippodrome in Hume next week. Marvellous news, I said, punching his arm. So you're a Carno man now. 
"'I'm only sorry I shall miss all the fun next weekend,' Stan said. "'I hear it's between you and Charlie for Harry Weldon's number one spot.' Just then, Freddy Jr. passed by, and I grabbed his arm. "'Hey, Freddy, meet Stan. Stan, this is Mr. Fred Carno, Jr.' Stan turned, grinned his happy grin, and stuck out his hand. Freddy shook it and gave me a puzzled look. "'Stan's the new boy,' I explained. "'Your dad's just taken him on.' Freddy's face darkened. "'Oh, for pity's sake!' he cried. "'Another one!' and he pushed off through the crowd, looking for something to kick. Just before closing time, Big Billy Rag came up to me, took me to one side. I was a bit surprised. He was a quiet lad, Billy, just used to sit at the table with the others, puffing away, drinking along, while Spikes the or Crabtree made the running, not one to take the initiative. "'If you want,' he said, "'we could work on a bit of... "'What do you lads call it? Stuff?' "'Business,' I said. "'What sort of thing do you have in mind, Bill?' "'Whatever you think,' Billy said. "'I know Charlie's all for trying something new with Fred and Jimmy-like, "'and I thought... Maybe you wouldn't want to get left behind. We arranged to stay behind after rehearsals the next week and see what could be done. Of course, I understood perfectly well that Fred and Jimmy would be touching Charlie for a few quid for their help, and that Big Billy would expect similar. I offered him a generous, I thought, remuneration, with a bonus to be paid if I was successful on the night. I reckoned I'd be able to afford it then, and it might give him the incentive to put plenty into it. Of course, I didn't realise then just how much he would put into it. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.